Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, for our regular news review. This week, we're looking in detail at the NHS Workforce Plan, what it says, what it doesn't say, and whether it will actually work. We also talk about some of the discussions from this week's BMA annual representative meeting, including a vote of no confidence in the GMC and some other motions of interest. And we're looking at a BMA report on long COVID in the medical profession and the devastating impact the condition has had on some doctors. And finally, our good news story is about the RCGP at last weekend's Pride. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, the long-awaited NHS Workforce Plan was published on Friday last week. This is a 15-year plan that sets out details on significantly growing the NHS workforce to help fill current vacancies, meet the needs of a growing and ageing population in the coming years and become less reliant on international recruitment. The government has pledged an additional £2.4 billion over the next five years to support the plan. So Nick, what exactly does it say in terms of the numbers of new people the NHS is hoping to recruit? Before I come on to how many people the plan is promising to recruit, it's worth mentioning that this plan also includes the first long-term projections about the NHS workforce. Those projections show that if we carry on as we are, there could be a shortfall of 15,000 fully qualified GPs by the middle of the next decade, by 2036. To put that in context, that's that's more than half of the total number of fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs working in England now. Across the NHS as a whole, there are currently around 112,000 vacancies, and that could triple to about 360,000 over the same period without action to turn things around, according to projections in the workforce plan. It's really clear about the scale of the workforce crisis facing the health service. As things stand, we're losing staff at a time when the population is ageing and becoming more complex. So unless there's a really significant intervention, we're heading for a situation where the problems the NHS already has with a shortage of staff will look almost insignificant, which seems an incredible thing to say. Uh, you know, especially when we know that general practice is, by some estimates, already more than 7,000 GPs short of the number it needs to look after the current patient population. Coming on to what the government plans to do to turn this around, the, the workforce plan focuses really heavily on expansion of training posts to try and sort of widen the funnel of staff joining the healthcare workforce. For general practice, the plan is to increase GP training posts from 4,000 a year currently to 6,000 a year, so it's a 50% increase by 2031. There'll be an extra 500 posts from 2025, an extra 1,000 from 2027, and then the full extra 2,000 in seven years' time. Medical school places will also double to 15,000 a year by 2031 under the plan. Adult nurse training places will nearly double, and other nursing and midwifery training is also going to expand. The Workforce Plan also mentions an aim of building on the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme. That scheme aimed to bring in 26,000 extra staff to support primary care, including physios, pharmacists and others. And although there are big question marks over the government's claim that it's already delivered that target and over the impact on general practice workload, it has brought in thousands more staff. And the government says it wants to bring in another 15,000 non-GP staff in direct patient care roles, as well as expanding numbers of primary care nurses by more than 5,000 by 2036-37. 
and helping more pharmacists qualify as independent prescribers. Overall, the plan envisages an absolutely colossal expansion of the NHS workforce. The NHS currently employs uh, around 1.4 million people. But over the next dozen years, that could expand to 2.3 million if governments invest to deliver the plan as it is. The vision is for an extra 60,000 doctors, 170,000 nurses, around 75,000 extra allied health professionals and more than 200,000 support workers in the NHS by 2036-37. One interesting element of this is that the government says it wants a higher proportion of new joiners to the NHS workforce to come from domestic routes rather than from overseas. So it says that in 15 years, it hopes that around 10% of the workforce would be recruited from overseas compared with about a quarter now. Uh, But in recent years, as GP training has expanded significantly, the proportion of those places filled by doctors from overseas has actually increased. Around half of GP trainees in the latest cohort are doctors whose primary medical qualification is from overseas. So it's going to be interesting to find out whether that commitment is one that that can be delivered. Will medical training turn out enough new doctors for the specialist places that the NHS wants to expand to be filled from domestic routes? And will UK medical trainees then choose the careers that the NHS wants them to? You mentioned the number of medical students there, and obviously they're going to have to rapidly increase that if they're going to fill all these extra places on the trainee schemes, as you said there. But there are some really quite controversial plans in the plan itself for medical apprenticeships and for cutting the length of medical training from five to four years in order to get people through that initial medical degree more quickly. What did the plan actually have to say about all of that? The NHS is piloting medical degree apprenticeships from next year. And in time-honoured NHS tradition, before the pilots have even started, the government says that by 2031-32, 2,000 medical students a year will be training via this route. What differentiates the apprentice route from the traditional medical school pathway into a medical career is that apprentices would earn a wage while they train, so they wouldn't have to pay tuition fees either. They'd work as a trainee medical practitioner while they study for their medical degree. They'd still have to go to medical school and they'd still have to complete an accredited medical degree. And the expectation is that people choosing this option would have similar qualifications to people who apply for medical school places. I mean, similar in terms of, uh, you know, A-level qualifications and so on. And the government says that doctors coming through apprenticeships would still have to meet the same GMC standards to join the medical register. But at the BMA annual conference this week, doctors raised a lot of concerns about this. I mean, they were worried that the qualifications for these doctors may not be recognised abroad in the same way and that apprenticeships could effectively trap doctors from less well-off backgrounds into a situation where their only potential employer is the NHS, whereas Other doctors' qualifications are more widely recognised, internationally recognised. And on the length of training, as you mentioned, there's a plan to develop four-year undergraduate medical degree programmes, so it's instead of the current five. Doctors would graduate six months earlier than they do now and then join a paid internship programme, so they'd effectively join the workforce slightly faster. On both points, the BMA's raised concerns. They've basically said that 
both these accelerated degrees and apprenticeships are untested, as we mentioned earlier, and therefore their potential contribution really to growing the NHS workforce is impossible to gauge. Another point to mention on all of this, perhaps, is that in the plan, NHS England says it is considered that in the future there's going to be a greater need for more generalist doctors and those with generalist skills. So it says that a lot of the increases modelled in the plan that you mentioned there, Nick, are, I quote, particularly targeted towards general practice. The plan also points out that this sort of reflects a growing consensus that training should change so that doctors are equipped to provide joined-up care required for people with multiple morbidities, so a a bigger focus on on generalism. It's quite likely we could probably expect to see a greater focus on that in some of these new medical training programmes that you're talking about there. But as well as all those facts and figures about how many staff we need to recruit, there's also quite a big focus on the need for the NHS to make better use of tech and AI in particular. There's that buzzword. The government and NHS England are apparently going to set up some expert group to ensure the NHS can take advantages of the opportunities AI can offer, which will also look at the skills and training that NHS staff need. The plan itself actually cites a report from the think tank, the Health Foundation, which suggested that up to 44% of admin work in general practice could be automated. And if anyone is interested in the role that AI could play in general practice in the future, do have a listen to last week's interview with Dr. Ben Brown from the University of Manchester, if you haven't already, where me and him talk about exactly that topic. But I suppose what's important about AI in the context of this conversation today is that all of those workforce figures that you talked through, Nick, have been modelled based on improved productivity. And the suggestion is that a lot of this increase in productivity will come through better use of tech, not all of it. The plan says that some productivity gains will come from things like reduced sickness absence, improved use of skill mix and that sort of thing. Also says that providing more care closer to home will help boost productivity. But there's no doubt that you know NHS England sees technology as playing an important role. So the, the modelling is all based on increased productivity of around 1.5 to 2%. And it says that this target is above the long-term trend and is stretching, to quote it. And the plan says that achieving these targets will be really dependent on two key factors – The first is increased capital to improve the NHS estate, including primary care premises. And the second is investment in digital infrastructure. You know, as we've said, the plan is backed by £2.4 billion over the next five years. But this isn't capital investment that will be used to improve this estate or build new IT infrastructure. This is just all for expanding training places. So there's clearly some question marks over this modelling if we don't know where that capital funding is going to come from, or even if it, it's actually coming. Clearly, if the NHS has agreed with the government that it will significantly boost productivity, then there are also potential other changes to the way the NHS works that could be coming down the line that will probably inevitably have an impact on general practice. Nick, you know, capital funding isn't the only glaring omission. There's no mention of pay in here, is there? We're heading towards an unprecedented five-day strike by junior doctors in a couple of weeks, which will be followed, you know, two days later by a 48-hour strike by consultants. These are very much about pay as well as working conditions. Yeah, the Downing Street conference launching the workforce plan, Rishi Sunak said uh, there were other ways than pay to boost retention of doctors. And the workforce plan does talk about things like improving culture in the workplace, which is unquestionably important. I mean, doctors being bullied or mistreated in other ways are unlikely to want to stay in their jobs. But when it came down to it, the Prime Minister struggled to articulate how he planned to improve retention of NHS staff. 
beyond something about support packages for newly qualified staff. Any suggestion that pay isn't a huge factor is is clearly ridiculous. I mean, as you, as you mentioned, junior doctors are about to walk out for five days, the longest strike in NHS history, and they're going to be followed within days by consultants striking for a couple of days. BMA chair Phil Banfield said um, every branch of the medical profession could be in dispute with the government and involved in industrial action before the next general election. And they're all calling for pay restoration after years of real terms pay cuts that have stripped 20% or more from the value of their income. They're also striking, as you mentioned, over patient safety. But one of the biggest factors driving patient safety concerns are that there aren't enough doctors because the government isn't retaining them, in part because of pay erosion. And Dr Banfield made the point that if the government doesn't act to diffuse the growing disputes with doctors, the workforce plan will hardly be worth the paper it's written on. He said that training lots more doctors while the existing workforce isn't persuaded to stay could make this workforce plan this country's greatest ever investment in the future Australian healthcare workforce. I think there were real hopes, weren't there, that the plan would have a big focus on retention. But I mean, I think everyone is really quite disappointed about what's actually in there. I mean, there's nothing in the plan at all that's specific about what NHS England and the government are going to do to retain GPs. When we know that GPs leaving is the biggest threat to the future of general practice, you know, the plan has all these ambitious targets for boosting the GP workforce. But, you know, it's worth remembering that general practice training has already expanded significantly over the past three or four years, and that's not made any difference at all. The fully qualified GP workforce has continued to fall. So begs the question, why would this massive expansion in training numbers change this? If anything, it potentially is going to add more pressure to the current workforce if they have all these new staff to train and support. So, and as we've said time and time again on this podcast, there's absolutely no point putting even more doctors into training if we're losing them faster than then we're gaining them, as has been the case in recent years, especially, you know, if the doctors we're losing are the most experienced. You know, retention is really so important. But like I said, the plan has very little of note to say on it. It restates some changes to the NHS pension scheme that would allow people to partially retire or return to work after retirement and then continue to pay into their pension. Well, you know, which obviously is a good thing and could potentially help a little bit in terms of maybe keeping doctors working a couple of sessions if they retire early. It says ICSs will be encouraged to adopt NHS terms and conditions in primary care, but it's not really clear what that means for general practice. So, you know, impossible to tell if that's going to make any difference at all. ICSs will also have to develop occupational health and wellbeing services, which will extend to cover primary care. So that is a positive step potentially, and it's something the BMA has called for in the past. You know, there's also some talk in the plan about recognising that portfolio careers are becoming more common. You know, and at some point in this financial year, apparently NHS England is going to develop what it calls a multi-profession career framework to support career development that will apparently form flexible and portfolio career pathways. Although, again, that's incredibly vague. So, you know, who knows what that means and whether it will be useful. You know, I mentioned premises earlier and the, the plan, you know, it, it does make this point kind of repeatedly that primary care premises will need investment and the number of GP trainers will need to be increased in order to achieve all these plans. But without more space, more overall resource, more trainers, you know, there's a real worry that these plans will just substantially add more pressure to the existing workforce. And so actually, rather than helping with retention, they could do the exact opposite. 
it's a mixed bag, isn't it, really? But Nick, taken all together, you know, there's obviously some good things in the plan. The fact that there actually is a plan is a good thing. You know, the fact it's going to be regularly updated every two years to kind of take account of changes in tech and the population and staff. Extra money, that's a good thing. But, you know, clearly there are a lot of problems which we've just been talking about putting it all together, you know, is it going to work? Is it going to make a difference, do you think? I mean, some of the responses we've had from GPs and the BMA aren't all that positive about the likely impact the plan will have. Um, One point is that all the extra training and so on that the plan focuses on will have no impact whatsoever on the, the current unsustainable pressure the workforce is facing. There's a massive current mismatch between the workforce and the patient population Doctors aren't reassured by the prospect of new recruits possibly starting to arrive in larger numbers a decade from now. They need funding and support now. And as we've said, the failure to offer anything new on pay and any real detail on how the government plans to increase retention of the existing workforce beyond things like pension changes that have already been announced is not reassuring. Ultimately, the NHS as a whole has been significantly underfunded by comparison with other comparable countries over a decade or more. And the plan acknowledges the need for wider investment, including in GP premises, as you mentioned. But this was outside the remit of this plan. So it doesn't actually give figures or any promises on that investment. So in some ways, the impact and success of this plan hinges on unknowns. And that isn't something that provides the kind of reassurance that a demoralised medical workforce needs. So if it's going to work, more announcements need to come soon, including infrastructure investment and crucially a deal on pay so that the existing workforce is more likely to remain in the NHS. This week, BMA representatives have been in Liverpool at the Association's annual representative meeting discussing a range of topics and issues that will shape BMA policy. We've mentioned on the podcast before, this is quite a wide-ranging conference that covers all branches of medicine, but there were a number of topics up for debate that were of interest to general practice. Nick, firstly, we mentioned on the last news podcast that the GMC was going to face a vote of no confidence from delegates at the conference. What actually happened with that? I should mention at this point for anyone listening that what I'm going to talk about does involve a mention of suicide. The BMA annual conference passed two votes of no confidence in the GMC in the end. We mentioned that it was going to face two votes a couple of podcasts ago. The first was over reported investments in fast food and soft drinks companies that the conference said were associated with increased morbidity and mortality. So there were some fairly passionate speeches about how it simply didn't seem right that any part of doctors' GMC fees should be invested in organisations that contribute to problems they spend a large part of their time trying to treat. But the second was over the impact of fitness to practice investigations on doctors. And doctors passed a vote of no confidence in the GMC and in the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service, the MPTS, over this. Uh, And they called for the leadership teams of both of these organisations to be sacked and replaced, basically. So there's a really strong signal of how deep anger runs in the medical profession with how their regulator handles investigations into doctors. One element of the debate was around a GMC report we wrote about last year on GP Online that found that between the start of 2018 and the end of 2020, 29 doctors died while under GMC investigation. 20 of those doctors died from natural causes, six from external causes, including five by suicide, 
and a further three from unspecified causes. Doctors also mentioned findings from the Medical Protection Society that two in five doctors who were investigated by the GMC had suicidal thoughts and that 85% said being investigated had a detrimental impact on their mental health. 97% said it caused stress and anxiety. And some high-profile mistakes by the GMC also came up. I mean, the case of Manchester GP Dr Manjula Aurora, who was suspended for a month because a medical tribunal said she dishonestly claimed to have been offered a laptop. A review of her case found the GMC missed multiple opportunities to stop the case ever coming to a tribunal and that it never should have reached that stage. There are also concerns about the fact that GMC is still using its power to appeal medical tribunal decisions. Um, So five years after the government promised to strip it of this power, after the case of Dr Hadiza Bauer-Garba, who the GMC struck off after appealing against a lesser sanction that was initially imposed by a tribunal and then had to reinstate her after she successfully appealed against being struck off. There are also concerns about discrimination, with doctors from ethnic minorities more likely to fail exams and to be referred to the GMC by their employers. And the GMC says it's working hard to reduce the impact and stress of investigations and that it's working to eradicate discrimination. And there is some evidence that things are moving in the right direction on that. But for many doctors, change is simply not happening fast enough. And the vote at the BMA conference, as I said, just reflects real anger over that. Looking at some of the other debates, perhaps, um, one of the things we mentioned on the last news podcast was a vote about SAS doctors. So these are specialty and associate specialist doctors and whether there should be a role for them in general practice. We've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast before. This is something that the GMC supports and is working to make happen. But we know that the BMA is against it. The union wrote a paper earlier this year saying it didn't think the role was viable in primary care, that it would drive up workload for GPs who would have to supervise these doctors, it would confirm Fuse patients if there's two different types of doctors in general practice, and it wouldn't really be cost affected either. The LMC's conference earlier this year, they voted against SAS doctors working in general practice, and the ARM this week also have voted against the idea. So that's a resounding rejection from the BMA. But I suppose what's interesting about that and this is something we didn't mention earlier in the first section of the podcast, is that it is in the workforce plan. This idea that doctors other than GPs could work in general practice is something that the NHS workforce plan says it wants to happen. So it's clearly an idea that's being backed by the government, by NHS England and by the GMC. But it's now something that's been comprehensively rejected by doctors themselves. So it's kind of hard to see how it's actually going to work in practice. But it's clearly something that the government wants to push forward. We've talked already about apprenticeships and the idea of accelerated medical degrees. And these are changes that haven't even been tried out yet and which are in the workforce plan as something that is supposedly going to contribute to a solution to the workforce crisis facing the health service. And with SAS doctors, again, this is in the workforce plan, but it's something that, as you mentioned, the BMA is opposed to, which hasn't been tried out yet. And there are some questions about how the pilot of an SAS doctor role in primary care would actually work. I think there were some questions about whether there was adequate funding to trial it, you know, in a comprehensive way. I think it might have been the RCGP warning about that earlier this year. If these innovations, if they are innovations that can work in the health service... They need to be trialled 
properly before they're put in place. And any idea that you can rely on them as a guaranteed contributor to the workforce of the future seems a little bit hopeful. Definitely. Perhaps other motions of interest at the ARM that doctors voted on, they voted that doctors training to be specialists and GPs should have multiple attempts at exams rather than there being a limit on them. And also that fees for exams that are necessary for career progression. So these are the exams that junior doctors need to take to either qualify or to move up into the next training grade, that they should be fully reimbursed, as should the cost of training programme portfolios. And they backed a motion as well, calling for student loan repayments to be covered by the government while doctors remained in NHS employment. So obviously those votes, you know, they don't really change anything. But what happens is they do become BMA policy. So these are things now that the BMA will be pushing for in discussions or negotiations with the government going forward. In fact, I think it's fairly clear from statements from the BMA uh, that the cost of exams is something that's already been mentioned in pay talks between the government and junior doctors already. Also of interest listeners might be a motion about pay transparency rules for GPs, which we've talked about before on the podcast as well. And delegates voted that the BMA would support any members who refuse to comply with those rules that require GPs or other staff in general practice to declare their income publicly if they earn over a certain amount each year. Moving on, this week the BMA published a report into the impact that long COVID has had on doctors and it made for some really worrying and quite upsetting reading. Nick, what did the report actually have to say? The main finding perhaps is that one in five doctors with long COVID or post-acute COVID as it's also known are no longer able to work. That seems to correlate fairly closely with ONS figures on the population as a whole that show around two million people have long COVID And around a fifth of them said that their ability to carry out daily activities had been affected by this or that had been limited a lot. The impact on some doctors in terms of their career has been absolutely devastating. So some have lost their jobs, some reported being unemployed and penniless. So some of the people who put themselves at risk on the front line as the pandemic took hold have paid with their careers and their livelihoods and are now struggling to pay their mortgages in some cases. Among doctors with long COVID, three in five said their ability to carry out day-to-day activities had been affected on a regular basis. And while 59% said they were working full-time before the pandemic, just 31% said they were now. Alarmingly, particularly given that if anyone could navigate the health service, it would be a doctor, two-thirds of doctors with long COVID said their condition had not been investigated thoroughly and half had never been referred to a long COVID clinic. So overall, this report really lays bare the depth of the impact on doctors who were infected with COVID-19 during the pandemic. Most of the doctors responding to that BMA poll, they caught their initial COVID infection during the first wave of the pandemic, when, as we all remember, there was a significant shortage of PPE. I mean, obviously, no one can tell exactly that doctors would have caught it at work, but it seems quite likely they may well have done. Clearly, that lack of equipment was a key factor in them getting sick in the first place, potentially. As you mentioned, 54% of respondents acquired COVID-19 during the first wave. So this is respondents to the BMA polling, acquired COVID-19 during the first wave of the pandemic in 2020. And 77% of them believed that they contracted COVID in their place of work. But at the time, only a small minority of doctors had access to PPE. I think 11% had access to an FFP2 
respirator and 16% to an FFP3 respirator. So, you know, numbers who were able to access PPE to protect themselves at the time were very, very low. There's a group called Long COVID Doctors for Action that's also been involved in this report. What do they and the BMA want to happen now? What are they saying the government needs to do for these doctors who are affected? The BMA and Long COVID Doctors for Action are saying that they want doctors with post-acute COVID, so long COVID, to be offered financial support. I mean, it's obviously not right that doctors who put themselves in harm's way during the pandemic are now unable to earn a living and struggling to pay their mortgages. So they're calling for financial support for doctors who are affected like that. And they want the condition recognised as an occupational disease for healthcare workers. They also want better access to physical and mental health support for those with with long COVID, better workplace protection for staff, uh, support for health and care staff with long COVID to return safely to work with some flexible working options to support them. The Long COVID Doctors for Action group, the comment they made on the uh, the report was that a significant number of doctors are now disabled following preventable occupational exposure to COVID. The way they put it is they're being managed out of the door with no support system in place and without means to financially support themselves and their families. So they've lost their careers and livelihoods, now face, in some cases, financial destitution. The comment was that employers are increasingly choosing to terminate contracts rather than support staff by offering adjustments to keep them in work. You know, saying that doctors feel betrayed and abandoned. This is the call that doctors in those situations should be supported to return to work through reasonable adjustments. And ultimately, if they can't, offered financial support to make sure that they aren't left jobless and penniless. Finally today, our good news story is about the Royal College of GPs taking part in London's Pride Parade last weekend. This is the second year the college has taken part in the parade. It first did so in 2019. Regional representatives at the college will also be attending the Pride events in Manchester and Belfast later this month. The college's involvement in Pride has been driven by its LGBTQ plus community group, which champions the needs of both LGBTQ plus patients and GPs. We've got a story on the website with some comments from RCGP members who took part, including the college's honorary treasurer, Dr Steve Mole, who said it was a wonderful experience and provided the opportunity to show how the college truly values equality and inclusion. And just before we go, it was obviously the NHS's 75th anniversary this week. To mark the occasion, we've got a couple of really good pieces on the website that are worth reading if you have a chance. Firstly, we've got an account of the start of the NHS by Dr John Fry, who was a GP in 1948 and one of the founding members of the RCGP. We have another very personal account looking at the state of the NHS and general practice now, 75 years later, by Dr Ellen Welsh, which is really worth a read. And finally, there's a fascinating piece by friend of the podcast, former GP and former chair of NICE, Professor Sir David Haslam and Professor David Pendleton, who's a professor in leadership at Henley Business School. They are co-chairs of the Henley Business School NHS Symposium. And they're arguing that going forwards, the NHS needs a complete rebalancing with the emphasis shifting away from hospitals to primary and community care and social care. And it's a really interesting read. So do have a look at that. We've linked to all of those in the description for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week when I'm talking to BMA Wales GP Committee Chair, Dr Gareth Ullman, about what needs to happen to save general practice. We'll be looking at the current state of general practice in Wales and what BMA Wales' Save Our Surgeries campaign is calling for. So do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. <laughs>